as always, we'll start with any leftover or unanswered questions from this morning before we dive into a further looking at election and predestination. So, um, anything. That, okay, the question for the tape is in Zechariah 9, in many translations, I just, um, let me look at mine, and they don't all do it the same, all of a sudden it takes on poetic language, that is a decision of the translators, uh, of, there are, there are characteristics of Hebrew poetry, I'm not terribly well versed in what they are, it's not rhyming, it has a lot more to do with rhythm and meter, and um, we know that there is Hebrew poetry, you got a whole book of Hebrew poetry, the Psalms. And so when the translators think they pick up the indications, this is poetic language, they'll put it in poetic block form. And so it's just an indication. And frequently in oracles, that's the way it comes out. There's a rhythm and a flow to it. And so I, I don't know enough to agree or disagree. Um, but that, that's what's going on there. That's all it is. is they, they believe they've indicated the markers of Hebrew poetry, and so they put it in poetic block form. And they're, they're frequently right. So it's, that's... That's a good question. It's not stupid. I haven't addressed it before, Don, so good f- 10 points. 10 points. Um, you'll notice they don't put Genesis 1 and 2 in poetic block form. Except when Adam says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, when it does enter poetic block form. That's just, sorry, that's, that's just for free. Um, I'll sit, sit, sit down here. Okay, any other questions from Zechariah before we dive into um, before we dive into um, election and predestination part two? Okay. I'll start by going over where we've come and where we're going in our study. We have been looking at, as we do an overview of Christian doctrine, the gospel. And so we started with the content of the gospel. What, what information makes up the gospel? And, and we uh, determined that it's the announcement of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures for our sins and that the deity and the humanity of Jesus are essential elements as well. That, that's what we've put as sort of the irreducible gospel. That Jesus Christ, who he is, he's the son of God, he's the son of man, died on the cross for our sins according to the scripture, was raised on the third day according to the scripture. That is the gospel. There's many other essential truths that we wouldn't put in that innermost circle of what is the gospel. The people who are trusting in that, who believe that, we would count as brothers and sisters. Whatever else we disagree on, we could have significant disagreements. If, if we agree on that, I'm willing to treat him as family. If we don't agree on that, it doesn't matter how much else we do agree on. Um, I would say, I think, I think you're playing on the other team. So that's the gospel. And then we shifted to, okay, what does the gospel require of me? How must I respond to the gospel? Because the gospel, the Bible, the New Testament can speak of obeying the gospel those who refuse to obey the gospel. So the gospel is, is calling on a response from us. And we spend about four weeks on the issue of, of how, do we, how do we look at the various ways Scripture speaks of that response. The Scriptures speak of receiving Christ. The Scriptures speak of looking and being saved. But most commonly, they deal with believing in faith. They deal with repentance and repentance in faith. And we dealt with how that works together. And and the, the, the solution that I argued and, and laid out is that the, the faith that saves is a repentant faith, and the repentance that saved is a believing repentance. That it's looking at the whole picture of what we're turning from and what we're turning to in faith. Now, we have shifted the corner 
to looking at salvation from God's perspective. And what I mean is, is this. The Bible can absolutely speak in terms of go out, call all, come unto me, all, all you who are weak and heavy laden. That, that's, that's our perspective, the gospel invitation. There are other places, and we looked at Ephesians chapter 1 last week, that clearly are looking at the salvation of men from God's vantage point and I believe the Bible says very clearly that from God's vantage point, he, he knows who will be saved. And the reason he knows who will be saved is he has chosen who will be saved. And I know that brings a host of problems and questions. All we did last week is work through side one of this page and look at Ephesians 1. So I'm just going to refill in the blanks for those of you who were not here last week. Go through the way I want to present this and then take some questions. Then we'll flip over and begin side two, which is really where we left off last week. Okay? So, bullet point number one, page one, natural man. And by natural man, I mean man unaided by grace. Man apart from God's help. Man as he is born into this world all by himself. Natural man is unable to desire to submit to God's law or come to Christ. Man is unable to desire or want to submit to God's law or come to Christ. This is really the fallout of original sin, the depravity of man. And, and again, if you want to go deeper with this, there's a message from December, um, right at the end of December. It was right after we did Genesis 3 called Original Sin and the Depravity of Man, where I argued for what I think the Bible says here. But just look at John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him to him. And, and I argued, the reason I, I, I worded this the way I did is what stops man from coming is not some invisible glass wall. Jesus is not saying, lots of people want to come, and I'm stopping them. You can't come. There's bouncers at the door. Oh, no, 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 no. You're not drawn. You, can, you have to stay outside. No, because in the same passage in John 6, Jesus also says, all who come to me will be received by me, and no one gets turned away. There are no bouncers at the door. There's no one stopping anyone from coming. The Bible's testimony is it is our own sinfulness that stops us from coming. Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit itself to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The natural mind cannot want to obey God, and it cannot please God. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So on your own, without God's grace, you can't understand spiritual truth. May I suggest to you the gospel is spiritual truth. You cannot delight in, want to obey God. You cannot come to Christ. Those are clear statements of Scripture. I mean, they're just right there. Um, and, and I think they mean what they say. And the importance with this doctrine, as with most doctrines, is keeping truth in balance. Because we're tempted to say, well, if that's true, then why evangelize? And if that's true, why pray for the salvation of the lost? And if that, but the Bible is equally emphatic that man is responsible, and that man, no one is, we're not robots and people on strings being twisted around. That, that I'm arguing the reason people don't come is because they don't want to come. It's not that someone's twisting their arm and making them not come. It's precisely because you get to do what you want that you don't want to come. Does, does, that, does that distinction make sense? Um, everyone is free to do what they want. In fact, and Jonathan Edwards talks about this in, in his book, The Freedom of the Will, 
is ironic. Luther wrote a book, The Bondage of the Will. Edwards wrote The Freedom of the Will, and they're both arguing the same thing. Luther's looking at the point that the will is, is, is sold to and comes into the world loving sin. It's, it can't free itself from sin. It, sin is its master. It delights. It's a master it loves, but it's, it's under the direction of sin. So Luther's calling it the bondage of the will. And Edwards is saying the freedom of the will because nothing outside of you is making you do anything. You're free. You get to do what you want. The problem is what if all that you want continually is evil? That's, that's the inability of man. The inability of man is precisely because no part of us is righteous. No part of us is left unstained. So no part of us desires God. That, that's what I'm arguing, the Bible teaches. So point two, because this is, so the point one, natural man is unable to desire or want to submit to God's law. Why is that the case? Because man is fallen and as a result loves his sin, there's the blank, and hates the righteousness of God that exposes his sinfulness. He loves his sin. Why, why can't he come? It's not because there's an invisible wall. It's not because angels are holding him back. It's not because anything other than he loves his sin, and therefore he hates the righteousness of God. Yes? Yes. Okay, two, I'm going to say, yeah, I'll say, I'll say two things. One, we'll deal with this more extensively because as we go through election, we'll eventually get to security of the believers and we'll get to the extent of the atonement. We'll go through all of the, the, the tulip acrostic. We're going to start, we started really with the depravity of man about a month ago. We sort of took it in pieces. We, we argued that man is completely depraved. There's no unstained portion of him, right? Now we're dealing with election. You're dealing with perseverance. So we will deal with this more extensively in, a, in the coming weeks. In short, when we see a professor, um, a professing Christian, fall away and abandon their profession of faith or abandon their obedience to the faith, sometimes that's what happens. I still am a Christian. I just do what I want. You know? um, we don't know until the end of the story. And so it's one of two things. Either it's First John, they departed from us to show they were never of us. Their true colors are showing. For a while, they looked like sheep. Turns out, they're goats. Or it's a believer who's backslidden into sin, and the Lord will chasten, and and like every father disciplines his sons, the Lord wounds and scourges them who he receives. And the Lord will come and fix his wagon. And that doesn't always happen instantly. We know David, the child that he'd conceived with Bathsheba was born, so we're at least dealing nine months after the fact that God sends Nathan. The point is God sends Nathan. And so there's a tension and a fear and an anxiety when we see someone who's professing Christ fall away because are you a David or are you a Judas? Right? And we don't know. And so it's frightening when you see somebody, when you see someone fall away. Um, so your question is, but clearly some of the people who, who fall away, never 
are restored. There are some people to whom, as First John said, they departed to show they're never of us. And, and you said, are there other motives? Well, certainly there are other motives, especially in the West. You see, if, if you're going to be persecuted for being a Christian, the other motives to do it other than to please God fly out the window pretty fast. It's why persecution purifies the church like nothing else. But you can be, I mean, good luck, to give a simple episode. How many, how many politicians and Senate and congressmen are professing atheists? You can, you can hardly get elected to public office as, an, as a professing atheist. So there's a sense in which being a Christian or being some person of faith gets you some amount of public standing, even still today, right? Um, then there's the issue of appeasing your conscience. For me, for a long time, I, I would tip my hat to Christianity as a way of sort of paying a sort of phantom tax to allow me to do what I wanted to do. So my conscience would convict me, Jeremy, you're, you're getting drunk. Jeremy, you're, you're fornicating. Jeremy, you're, you're doing these bad things. And I would periodically sort of tip my hat. Well, I'll, I'll pay my toll. I'll come to church every now and then. I'll do, you know, as a way of appeasing my, like I gave God something, you know. So I think there's that. Um, I think there's, there's all sorts of reasons. The Pharisees, how do you explain the Pharisees? These are people who memorize, I mean, you're, you're involved in Awana, trying to get people to memorize a few verses. They'd memorize the entire Old Testament in most cases. It's frightening, right? But they got a reward, Jesus says. They get the reward now. They get praise from men. They get, they, there's all sorts of other motives that, that could be going on. And, and here's the thing. I don't necessarily think everybody who's a false professor is aware that they are a false professor. Otherwise, go to, go to 2 Corinthians 13. If everyone who is a false professor knew, <laughs> I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing, <laughs> there would be no point in writing 2 Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 13, I mean, um, no point whatsoever. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. And this is probably, and we'll get to this in coming weeks, but this is just a sort of, why not? There's this assumption people have that if you're a Christian, you know you're a Christian. I don't think the Bible teaches that. That you just sort of intuitively know. Of course I'd know. Otherwise, why would the Bible have like an entire book of the Bible like 1 John? Here's how we know that we've come to know him. And it doesn't say because you got this feeling. So well, you love the brethren and you confess your sin and you, you walk in the light and you profess the son and you, you, you know. So here's 2 Corinthians 13, 5, which would be absolutely pointless if every false confessor knew they were a false confessor. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? The, the assumption is, what type of test are you taking? You're taking the, does Jesus live in me test? Because what he's saying is, by virtue of claiming to be a Christian, you're claiming that God lives inside of you. The assumption, that's going to change things. So test yourself to see if there's evidences that God lives inside of you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now that, that warning is pointless if, well, of course you know you're a Christian. And of course the fakers know they're fakers. No, they don't. No, we don't. Not in all cases. And thus, there's an, a warrant for testing yourself. So um, I, that, that's to me is one of the reasons why I, I spend as much time as I did on the role of repentance and faith, because I was one of those people who was deceived, who thought I was a Christian and wasn't. 
you know? And there might be people here today who think they're Christians who aren't. And, okay, rather than saying peace, peace, where there is no peace, the Bible gives clear answers on how do you know you're a Christian? What, what, what are the marks of a Christian? There's clear biblical answers to those questions. And so we look for them, and as we see them, we grow, grow encouraged. Um, anyway, does that, that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question. Does that sort of deal with it? or? Yeah. Well the, well, the simplest way is, are you submitting to God or are you negotiating with God? Everyone, according to Hebrews, is held a slave through fear of death. Everyone knows about judgment. Everyone knows there's a God deep down inside. Everyone knows about judgment and right and wrong. So every one of us is walking around with a certain amount of fear of death, fear of judgment. And we all deal with that in certain ways. One of the ways to deal with it is, rather than just submitting to the Lord, negotiating with him. And that's where you get into, well, I'll do this, this, and this, but I get to keep this, which is exactly my approach was. I'll, you can have this, this, and this, and I'm going to keep this, this, and this. And, right. And, and God is many things he doesn't negotiate, as far as I can tell. Uh, he kind of, here's my offer of salvation. Do you want it? Let me go first bury my, my father. You know, and I know there's extenuating circumstances, but the point is, Jesus never said, well, okay, rich young ruler, sell all that you have. He didn't. Okay, sell most of what you have. I'll take that. If you sell three quarters of half, half of one quarter, he doesn't do that. He lets him walk away. Because the gospel is free and the gospel is great, but the gospel isn't negotiable, right? Um, so I think there's plenty of people trying to negotiate with God. And uh, I'll, do, I'll help out Nawana. I'll come on Sunday. I'll, to ease their conscience because they're, they're afraid of judgment. They're afraid of, of I mean, what, what, what drives people into all the other religions of the world? There's a fear of death and judgment. And, and these religions claim to, to, to deal with that, which is why getting rid of the wrath of God is insane because it's the fear of the wrath of God that drives people in the most cases um, in, in, to the, in through the doors. So be like, ah, there's nothing to be afraid of. Right. Yeah, the serpent's first lie is you won't die. Denial of the doctrine of the wrath and judgment is the first starting point. It's always the starting point. And then once you get rid of that, then we can do what we want without fear of consequence. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. The final point on the outline is this. So, so I've argued man can't come because man doesn't want to because you're a slave to what you serve and we're born loving sin and hating righteousness. The, the myth, the lie, is the belief that we can choose our master. And having been a slave to sin, we can one day say, you know what, I'm going to be a slave to righteousness now. 
Um, and it doesn't work that way. Um, John three nineteen through 20, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. No one is a free agent. No one comes into the world a free agent, either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. As the great Jewish theologian Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. Hey, even a broken clock's right twice a day. Um, so, the notion that people are moral free agents is simply not upheld by the Bible. People are under the sway of sin or righteousness. And so then, the doctrine of election comes in and says, but God, in his amazing love and mercy, chooses or chose to make sure that some would in fact be saved. While God truly and freely calls all men to salvation, ultimately, is only his elect in whom he works who will repent and believe. That is what I believe the Bible teaches about election. So there's a, there's a gospel call to everyone. Everyone's invited. No one's going to be turned away. The, the analogy I'd use is this. Imagine you show up to a, a crack den uh, uh, where a bunch of crack addicts are, are living. And you, you've got a bus outside, and the bus is like a traveling crack clinic, and you've got a miracle drug that will, that will remove crack addiction like that. They won't go through the intensive withdrawals and shaking. Not only that, but you're going you're gonna to ship them off to go be adopted and live in a mansion with a rich, rich ruler who wants to train them and groom them to take over the family business and eventually become rulers in their own rights. And you're going through the halls of this crack house announcing this good news. The problem is this, because they're addicted to their crack, they don't want to be free from it. And, and as you walk in the rooms and as you call them, they, they cringe and hide in the corners, and, and some of them actually even throw things at you to leave them alone so that you don't see their shame. And, and they turn the lights off, and, and they get mad at you. And so you're walking the halls, and you're inviting, come, come, come and be saved. Come get water without price and bread without cost. Why would you perish? And they, they don't come. Then picture the guy actually goes in and actually starts just picking people up and throwing them on the bus. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the picture I see of God saving something. Like he's calling all everybody. He's, everyone's invited, and he's going to save some. Some are going to get saved. Um, Acts 13.48. And, and I just want to show you the New Testament is really unashamed in speaking in these terms. Um, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's just pretty unashamed. It, it, we get all embarrassed about the doctrine of election because it's controversial and because it's hard. The New Testament's like, yeah, how many people got saved at your rally this week? Well, the elect got saved. Okay. Um, Lydia, how did she get converted? Did, did Lydia, you know, she was a good person, and she made up her mind, had a free decision... The one who heard us was a woman named Lydia, the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I would submit to you, if God can do that with Lydia, he can do that with anyone. Um, Romans 8, 29 to 30. Those he foreknew, and I talked last week about how that knowing is not a matter of knowledge, it's relationship. Adam knew his wife and she had a son. Those God knew beforehand, he, he was in a relationship with before. Those he foreknew, he predestined, it's a biblical term, predestined is a biblical term, to be conformed to the image of his son 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And, and we read Ephesians 1 last week. Um, so flip the page over. I will just do the, the top thing, um, the top two questions, and, um, and then I'll take some questions. So the blanks. Question. What does the Bible mean when it speaks of election? Because remember I said everybody, every denomination has a doctrine of election. You have to because it's a biblical term. Unlike some terms like the Trinity, which you will not find in your Bible, elect, chose, predestined, those show up repeatedly in the Bible. So anybody even remotely trying to be faithful to the Bible has got to do something with them. So even, even Arminians and, and free will Baptists have a doctrine of predestination election because it's, it's a term in the Bible. They just don't agree with what I think it means. Um, it's a very interesting definition of pre-choose to, deter, to look and see who's going to choose you and then choose them. It's a very, anyway, sorry. Election is the act of God before time in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on an account of any foreseen goodness in them, but only because of his good, sovereign, sovereign goodwill. The first blank's bigger. Sovereign goodwill. Election is an act of God before time when she chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen good in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. I think it's pleasure, actually. I should have the one with the blanks filled in, but I don't have it. I'm pretty sure it's sovereign good pleasure. You can put in goodwill. It's okay. Now, that's Grudem's definition. I think it's a pretty decent one. Um, and then we'll get to the next question. What do we mean when we say that election is unconditional? Because that's the term, unconditional election. If you've heard of the tulip acrostic, the T stands for total depravity. The U stands for unconditional election. What we mean, or what I mean by unconditional is this, that this does not mean God's decision is arbitrary. Does not mean that God rolled the dice. Unconditional does not mean God's decision is arbitrary. God's purposes are his own. He has not revealed them to us. All it means is this. God has told us why he didn't choose us, what the reasons were not, and he has not chosen to tell us what his purposes are. So when we say it's unconditional, what we mean is God's choice of who he would save does not factor in anything outside of himself. He's not taking into account the good that you're going to do, that he sees you doing later in your life. Why do we believe that? Romans 9, 11 through 13. Though they were not yet born, speaking of the twins, Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. In other words, what Paul's saying is God did it this way intending to make a point. The point being, I chose one before either were born and before either had done anything good or bad. I want you to get this. I'm not choosing the good ones and missing the bad ones. That's not why. Now, it doesn't mean it's arbitrary, but we know one reason he's not basing his choice. It's not because of some foreseen good or bad. In order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. It's, it's God's got his reasons. He hasn't chosen to tell us what they are. 
But he says, let me make one thing clear. It's not because I chose, it's not because you guys were better. It's not because you're the good guys. Ephesians, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you've been going through Genesis in your studies, you see the guys that God's picking are not the good guys. They're not the good guys. I mean, we, that keeps coming up in our Bible study. It's like, why does God put up with this guy? He's a jerk. Right? Right, Don? <laughs> yes, he's a jerk. And God works through jerks. And which just gives us great hope, right? <laughs> yes. Mm. You might have mercy. Let's go there. Let's go to Exodus 34. Yeah. This is not, by the way, just some doctrine that Paul came up with. Sometimes people argue that because Paul is so explicit in Ephesians 1 and then Romans 9 that sometimes people that don't like election predestination, as I'm explaining it, um, will say, well, Paul just made that up. Now, of course, to argue that, you've got to somehow then argue that Paul's writings aren't Scripture or something. But there are people, aren't there, Willoughby, that are willing to say Paul's writings aren't Scripture, right? Yes. Okay. And so one way out is to say, well, okay, Paul made all this up. And so Paul's homophobic, and Paul's a bigot, and he's also came up with this crazy election thing, and that's why we don't like Paul. Exodus 34. The context here, um, as Mr. Brewer Sr. pointed out, um, is, is Israel has sinned with the golden calf, and God tells Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses, amazingly, stands up and intercedes for the people and intercedes on their behalf. And God relents. And we learn something important about God at this point in the story. This is the first time. Now, Abraham attempted to intercede for Sodom. He's the first picture of an intercessor I think we get. And God listens to him, but ultimately Abraham fails because there weren't even 10 righteous people in Sodom. And so finally Abraham's like, I give up. And God bless him. Here's the first time someone intercedes and God relents. And Moses coming out of this pleads with God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Um, and um, in chapter 33, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to him. I'll be gracious and have mercy on whom I have mercy. Do you get that? The very first time God's like, let me start telling you about who I am. I'll tell you my glory. I'll tell you about me. Because God's glory is who he is. It's not like a cloak he puts on. The glory of the Lord is the Lord. And so when Moses says, show me your glory, basically God's response is, okay, in answer to your prayer to show me your glory, I will tell you more about myself. I will reveal more of myself to you. And the very first thing he says is, I mercy whom I mercy. There it is. What's your glory, Lord? I'm free to be merciful to whom I'm merciful. Um, then jump down to 34.6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And there's meant to be a tension there. You just said you forgive. But I don't 
pardon iniquity. I don't let the guilty go. And we're not going to fully understand how this works until the cross, where God is both just and justifier. So God says, I'll tell you my glory. I mercy whom I mercy, and I'm merciful, and I forgive, and I don't let guilty people go free. That's my glory. Which I think Moses was supposed to go, how does that work? And you know, God will show him. It starts out with the sacrificial system. Someone, there's got to be punishment. Price has got to be paid. I don't just let, I don't, the way I show mercy isn't by just saying, no, don't worry about it. Sin has to be dealt with. I deal with sin. Now jump ahead to, um, to Ephesians 2. I mean, not Ephesians, Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2. When we talk about election being unconditional, it is not about any foreseen good in us. If anything, the Bible seems to indicate God chose the scuzziest, least impressive specimens of humanity. Amen for that. Look at verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1. Did I say 2? I mean 1. Sorry. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So we're getting a glimpse. God's choice isn't arbitrary. He's got a purpose. One of his purposes, I'm going to take the most despised, shameful people so that when I work through them, I'm going to silence and shame those who think they're smart and think they're something. So if there's any election basis, it's, it's, it's unworthiness, if anything. Um, Yeah. Because I'm foolish, because I'm contemptible. Yeah. I don't know if it's true or not. I, I, I heard it third hand, and it would be a couple hundred years later, but apparently there's a story of, I think, in Cromwell's time, one of the kings or one of the dukes or whatever was at a prayer meeting and wanted to thank the Lord for the letter M. And uh, why the letter M? Because Paul didn't say not any powerful, strong, and mighty, but not many. You've heard that memory as well? Duchess. I thought it was a lady. I did think it was a lady. Wow, okay. You've heard wow, okay, this story's flowing around here. Okay. Next week we're gonna we're gonna dig to the bottom of this and this sort of this sort of look it look it up, Zeb. Okay. I'm gonna give you one other example. This is an important thing to get. The difference between grace and justice. God is just, he never claims to be fair. Okay? He never claims to be fair. What's the difference between justice and fairness? Of course you know, Serena. You know too. Okay, anyone else want to take a swing at the ball? The difference between justice and fairness. Fairness is is equality of treatment. Right, right. 
Justice doesn't claim that. In other words, let me ask you a question. If I come in here and I hand out um, Snickers bars to most people here, but not to everyone, is that fair? Is that equity? No, of course it's not. Did I, did I wrong anybody? Was anything, un, does an injustice happen? No. And that's the big thing we gotta understand. God can mercy who he mercies. And the second we start to say, that's not fair, he need, we're arguing works, we're arguing debt, and the whole point is it's grace. And, and that, that's the hard thing for us to wrap our heads around. We want, get this, we intuitively believe, and people will say this, will intuitively believe God is obligated to save us. He is obligated to provide salvation for us. In fact, I think many people sort of, because hell is such a difficult doctrine, really will say things like, you know, God can only send people to hell if they reject the gospel. And then they'll start making up things like if you don't get Because in their mind, hell is so bad that the only way, that God would have to provide a means of escape from hell because hell is so terrible. No. It's, it, the second you make it that, go, go, to, go to Romans 10, this 11. The second you argue on that, you destroy grace. The second you argue, God ought to save. It's no longer grace. In other words, to put it as clear as I can, the sentence, God ought to be gracious, is nonsensical. It's a contradiction in terms. By definition, grace can't be owed. Verse 6, verse 5 and 6, Romans 11. So too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And the fundamental idea of works is debt, according to Romans 4. The fundamental notion of earning, works, earning, is is debt. Paul says you don't take your paycheck as a grace. You're owed your paycheck. Getting paid is not grace. It's debt. And, and so God's choice is grace. It's not of debt. He's not obligated to. And so anytime we start thinking, well, if he, if he did this, then he should have done, you are thinking in terms of debt. You're thinking of a God who's obligated to save, a God who must save, a God who somehow needs to. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of overlap between mercy and grace. The big difference is mercy is not giving somebody what they deserve. Grace is giving them something they don't. So it's God's mercy that holds back judgment, and it's God's grace that gives salvation. So there, there's a lot of overlap between mercy and grace, but the distinction is mercy is, is not giving something, something they just do deserve, holding back, being merciful. You just, you know, your kid deserves some punishment. You're being merciful today. Grace is, you don't deserve it, but pajama run to, you know, get an ice cream sundae. I'll give one final example, and then we'll, we'll pick this up next week, because we really didn't hit the second page very much, did we? But we'll do it next week. But R.C. Sproul tells a great story to illustrate this, and to illustrate how quickly um, we shift from marveling at grace to feeling that God owes us grace. He was a professor, I think, at RTS or Westminster? Still is at RTS? Okay, Reformed? Okay. <coughs> 
Okay. R.C. Sproul is a teacher, and he's teaching college-level, seminary-level classes, and um, he, his class has three papers that are due, each worth a third of the grade of the class. And he makes it clear, he says, on his opening day of class, that the papers will not be accepted late. No exceptions will be given. Anyone who hands a late paper gets a zero. Okay? And then come, time comes up in the class for the first paper. And he said, the overwhelming majority of the class took me seriously. Their papers are handed in. After everyone's left, there's three trembling students standing in the front. They go, oh, Professor R.C., oh, Professor R.C., uh, you don't, uh, the car broke down and the, the dog ran away and, um, and there's people I needed to witness to and um, you got to put some sort of sanctified excuse in there. And he looks at them and he says, and he said, just please, please, please give us the weekend. So, okay, you have an extension. There won't be any penalty. Take the weekend. Okay, time for the second paper comes up. And um, now... Most of the class hands in the paper, but now there's about a dozen people up front. And they're still kind of scared, but they're a little emboldened. They, please, please, can we just have the weekend? And he goes, okay. And, and he's telling us, they actually break into song at this point. We love you, profs, bro. Yes, anyway. So then comes time for the third paper. Now, about a third of the class just starts walking out. And he, and he looks over at one of them and he's like, Johnson, where's your paper? Johnson turns around and he says, oh, don't worry, Professor Sproul, I'll get it to you on Monday. He goes, okay, you don't have your paper, Johnson? No. Okay, that's a zero. And he goes, the people then are shocked and they turn to me and you know what they said? That's not fair. He said, oh, you want fair, do you? Johnson, did you have your paper in on time last, the second one? No. Okay, you failed that one too. Who else wants fair justice? Show of hands, who wants justice? But how quickly we can take grace and feel indebted to it. If you gave that person an extension, then you owe me an extension. If, if you gave Johnson an extension on his paper, then I need an extension. No, I'm merciful to whom I'm merciful, God says. He, no one gets injustice. No one gets wronged. Some get more lavish mercy than others. And God says, hey, it's my glory that I'm free to mercy whom I mercy and to grace whom I grace. And, and everything in us wants to say, that's not fair. And that's why he's God and we're not. We'll pick this up next week. Thank you. Have a good day.